0: All right. so one of my favorite classes in middle school was PE. Okay. Um, and one of my favorite units in PE was when we dedicated a few weeks to touch football. In the eighth grade, I lived and breathed football. That was my story. It was part of growing up male in central Ohio, I'm pretty sure. Uh, every sleepover, every recess, every time you actually stepped foot outside of the door, all of a sudden, magically, there appeared a football. Like you would just, all of a sudden your hands would be a rubberized hutch or a, well, a, a fancy leather Wilson. And then all of a sudden it would be thrown around. And now look, I recognized in retrospect that several of the boys at these different events just humored me and didn't really like football and just let me throw it and, uh, and be a would-be quarterback. But I personally love football and I really love to be in charge of the ball and the game. Uh, that's the other thing that you should know about me in the beginning of eighth grade here. I was at the very peak of my social popularity. <laughs> uh, yes, it's just a little sad to peak socially in eighth grade. I just let you know, beginning eighth grade, I was a kind of a big deal. I got like I could hear my How I know it's a big deal? I got in trouble a lot. I hung out with the cool kids. I knew which parties were happening and where. Uh, and I really liked the middle school male pastime, football. So all this background sets up how excited I was when the gym teachers invited me and a few other 8th graders to their office to pick uh, football teams off of a clipboard for PE. Uh, remember, I was in charge. I love football. Anyway, uh, I was in the office and I remember the buzzing fluorescent lights, Coach Aspect's cool Panther tattoo on his calf. And the layers upon layers of whistles on the walls. Like, how many whistles does one man need? That was a lot of whistles. Um, and so I remember this as I began to choose my perfect, my dream team. Round by round, I chose the people that I most wanted to play football with. The kids I thought were the coolest, and the funniest, the most exciting, the most popular. And I even thought I chose a few people who would be good at football, too. Well, just several days, like a week or two into the actual season, the middle PE touch football season, it was clear that I had handpicked a team that was just terrible. <laughs> we could barely get a first down, let alone win a single game. Friends like Jimmy and Eric and Andrew and David were hilarious and so very cool, but together we could not complete a pass between them and me, uh, much less a catch a football. For much of the season, I actually blamed them, right? I, I was so agonized that I had chosen such bad athletes for my team, and I began to insist to be quarterback more and more and more, and the tension got downright angry towards the end of the season. Maybe it was the last game, or it was maybe close to the second to last game. It's hard to remember, but I spent a, a, probably the majority of the game yelling at my teammates in anger, and they did gave, gave it back to me in kind, so it was a pretty tense environment. Jimmy and Eric and Andrew and David were angry and hurt, and I was angry and hurt. And so I basically just took the ball and I started to throw it as hard and as far as I could, every single down, which resulted in a lot of interceptions. Um, and so I became more angry and hurt. Okay, so you're getting the, the idea here. After the game, a near friend, who probably was a little bit resentful that he wasn't on my clique that was a football team, uh, came up to me, his name was Kevin, he came over and he mentioned something about the fact that I had thrown many, many, many interceptions that game. And I just, like, emotionally lost it. Like, eighth grade, on the field, falling my knees, weeping. Just weeping. Uh, this was about as low as it could go for a stereotypical Midwestern man-child. I was not feeling much lower than that. Uh, but that was how I felt low, as low as I could go. I felt like I didn't know what to do. I didn't have what it took. I wasn't good enough. I felt like I wasn't enough. I felt weak in that moment. So in our passage tonight, Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30, I want you to see that God is looking for a savior or a rescuer here, a deliverer, someone to captain his all-star worldwide rescue team. And God surveys the list of Israelite names on his heavenly pick clipboard, and he picks Ehud, <laughs> We'll talk about this more later, but Ehud is not the most popular man. Ehud was not the most likable man, nor was he likely to succeed. God chooses a preposterously weak rescuer. Then along with Ehud, God's plan A of rescue is an equally high and holy joke. The bathroom stabbing, replete with squishy jello rolls of fat and explosive stinky poop. That's what's going on in this passage. But before we give God a lecture about best practices, I'd ask you to remember my 8th grade experiment in picking a team and trying to win. Or maybe your latest Davidson misadventure. Simply put Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. Make it clear, God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. They are far more astonishing, far more funny, and far more free than our ways. God's ways are not our ways. They are far more astonishing, they are far more funny, and they are far more free. And look, God's ways are front and center in our passage tonight. They're in display case, so to speak. And there's three overlapping principles that God's purposes in the world are all about. And we're going to look at those in order. First, verses 12 through 15, and by the way, this is all in your handout in the bottom part. Uh, in the short outline. First, verses 12 through 15 tell us, we see there, our outlandish need. Okay, second, verses 15 through 21, we see God's gratuitous person. And third and finally, verses 21 through 30, we see God's gratuitous work So again, that's on the bottom of your handout, so I won't repeat that. But let's begin where the passage begins with verses 12 through 15 in our outlandish need. So if you're here with us last week, or you've read the book of Judges before, in some even just a section of it or a piece of it, you'll immediately notice that verses 12 through 15 sound very, very, very familiar. Okay? The people of Israel do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. The narrator doesn't even have to tell you what the evil is. He's just assuming that you know. Like you've seen it in the past, you're going to see it in the future again. Look, they just worshipped, they looked for ultimate happiness, ultimate control somewhere other than God. And so God hands his people over to the consequences of resting their lives on someone or something that only demands more and more and more. That is that is an idol. And the Lord strengthened the hand of Eglon, or Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years, verses 12 and 14. And perhaps, look... Perhaps Israel worshipped Moab's gods or goddesses or their regional success. We don't know for sure, but all we do know is that God showed them an external oppression in order to help God's people to see their internal oppression going on. And according to verse 15, God's loving consequences work. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord as they turn to God for what they needed, for their happiness, for their security in life. And guess what? God sends a deliverer He rescues. Look, if you're trying to figure out how this applies to us today, the 21st century, the digital age, I spent a fair amount of time talking about that last week. Um, and so, what I'm going to do, instead of re-explain everything and why this is why God would do this and what this has to do with our lives, I'm just going to direct you to our brand new podcast. Shamelessly, uh, are you up at Davidson? We have a podcast. We're in the 21st century, uh, so you can look that up on iTunes or on our website. And you can listen to last week's sermon for the first time or again, um, or we can just talk about it another time, other than this. So, but what I want to do here is I want to ask the question: Why does this cycle happen? Why does the idolatry, the oppression, the crying out, the God's rescue—why does that repeat itself over and over and over again in Judges? I'm going to say the simple answer is because Judges is a historical book. It's telling us exactly how it happened. And it happened to happen again and again, even if that seems repetitive. But some of you are like, got it. Let's go to the deeper, more satisfying answer here. I think it's this. The, the cycle of the judges is telling us who we are and who God is over and over again, okay? outlandishly, there's some part of us, even those of us who would call ourselves Christian here tonight, you and I forget how good God is, and we go and look for the greener grass over and over and over. Okay, we're like that we're like that cow at the side of the road, right, where, like, there's this huge, beautiful, like, sparkling pasture behind the cow. And the cow is, like, reaching through the barbed wire to eat the, like, the, like, exhaust-fumed grass next to the side of the road. Okay? But perhaps even more outlandishly, at least that's just my story, but at least, uh, to count. But perhaps even more outlandishly, God continues to cut both sides of my face and redirect me to what satisfies patiently. Over and over, he makes me lie down and green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So look, one Sunday, a church regular attender, all-star attender, front pew, goes up to Martin Luther, this historical figure who's a preacher. And I like historical figures for preachers. Uh, you can figure out why. Um, and another, and basically, he's preached yet another. Martin Luther has preached yet another sermon about how God rescues us from ourselves. And the churchman asks Luther if he would ever preach about something else. Can you just preach about something else, Luther? And Luther famously replied... I will start preaching about something else when you and I don't forget this gospel every week. (laughs) I will start preaching about something else when you and I don't forget this gospel, this good news, this message every week. And you get the point. We only master who God is and who we are and how they relate. We only master the gospel, or better, we only get mastered by the gospel by reading it and hearing the same message over and over and over again. But I want you to notice the basic story that's repeated about who we are and who God is. It does have some very particular and very peculiar differences um, from last week to this week and, and future weeks in you know, Judges. Just like the story of our lives, these differences, like the people, and the places, the things and the times, the details are what makes the same old outlandish story shine. You get that? Like it's the details that are different that we need to pay attention to. So along these lines, let's look at verses fifteen through twenty-one and the gratuitous person of Ehud. Point two for those ninjas out there. Verse fifteen. Verse fifteen describes God's gratuitous person, His star rescuer, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjaminite. Okay, sounds sounds good to bug pre standard Old Testament fair. A deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. What? Left-handed? Whoa, whoa, whoa! God, where did you get so particular about the handedness of your rescuer? Like, right or left? Who really cares? Well, actually, this is a pretty poor translation. Left-handed is a very vague translation of the original Hebrew, which more literally means a man shut or bound up in his right hand. A man bound or shut up in his right hand. This means that Ehud is only a lefty because he can't be a righty. His right hand was probably crippled. Ehud is disabled. He is, God blesses everyone, tiny Tim of the tiny crutch. <laughs> Ehud is physically, he, this is, God, you have to see this. God picks Ehud, who is a physically handicapped person, as his military deliverer. What's more, Ehud's name, like most names in the ancient Near and especially in Israel, has a meaning that gets after everything. And this meaning, the literal meaning of the, of the name Ehud is, where is the splendor? Where is the majesty? That's the um, And so, the parents chose this name for him, uh, shame on them. But, and I don't think they're just doing that because it's a really tough time to be born in. I think they look at Ehud, and they assess his physical condition, and they say, where is the splendor, and where is the mess? You have to understand, in ancient Israel, the right hand was so significant. The right hand was so powerful, trusted, and prestigious. Look, if you read the Old Testament at all, you'll start to see that God swears by his right hand. God talks about pleasures, and the shows one sitting at his right hand not his left hand. And Ehud does not have a right hand that works properly to the shame of his family and to the scorn of his tribe and his nation. But God doesn't look at Ehud's weaknesses, his inability with shame or scorn. It's actually the opposite for God. God looks at Ehud and goes, that's my man. That's the person I'm going to use to rescue Israel. That's my deliverer. And look, this elevation of Ehud is not some special con- like condescending move by God. This is God's normal behavior. It's so important to see this. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11, sometimes called the Hall of Faith, describes the judges as people who, quote, through faith were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So in other words, Ehud is in good company. A lot of the fellow judges, practically every judge, is made strong out of weakness. Okay. But listen to the way that Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2-3, through three, describes the ultimate judge, to whom Ehud only dimly points. For he, Jesus, grew up before him, God, like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He, Jesus, had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire of him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, just catch that. I know we read this a lot. Sometimes some of you have heard this a lot. People hid their face from him. He was despised. And he's, we esteemed him not. Look, so here's, here's the point. If you took Jesus and you lined him up with all the other famous history historical world leaders... Or even just the famous religious historical leaders, you and I would not pick Jesus to change the world. We just wouldn't. He was born in a stable, into grinding poverty, in a political backwater. He spent 30 years in wood shavings and obscurity as a carpenter. And his three years total of ministry that's sure that you're going to be here at Davidson. Three years. He did not travel more than the length and breadth of a geographical space the size of Ohio. He missed Athens, Rome, Alexandria, and even Corinth, let alone India and China. He wasn't beautiful. He was despised and rejected. Jesus wasn't esteemed. He was the guy who tried not to make eye contact with on the corner of the street. Then his greatest victory is just plain humiliating. right? He gets himself killed like a crook hung up to die next to two, crim- two thieves who are arguing around him. Frederick Beekner, as usual, <laughs> captures Jesus' gratuity beautifully. He's the king who looks like a tramp. The prince of peace who looks like the prince of fools. The lamb of God who ends up like something hung at the, bo- the butcher's shop. And if this wasn't enough, perhaps worst of all, this Jesus does not go after the influencers who influence people. <laughs> he doesn't go for the five-star ministry-minded game-changers. Instead, Jesus' legacy is a handful of no-star, maybe one-star athletes, one-star players in the world's scheme, spiritual scheme. People like the Betrayer Jesus, betrayer Peter. excuse me, The Garden of Gethsemane, Nappers. Rather than praise. <clears throat> former prostitutes, former tax collectors, current scaredy cats, and people pleasers like me. God's choice of Ehud pushes me to believe that God could use me as I am to effect change, to make things more in this world the way they should be and ought to be. Do you feel weak? Do you feel defeated? you feel like you're not good enough and you don't have what it takes. Good. Are you and I willing to make ourselves weak? To make ourselves low? To trust that God rescues us through apology? Through confessing? Through forgiving other people who hurt us? Are we willing to trust that God uses awkward, fumbling, imperfect conversations over coffee and lunch or even over the Bible or even monologues like this one are we willing to follow Jesus into the pain are we willing to be well acquainted with grief like this to not give an answer or defend ourselves or defend the situation but just to sit and listen or even cry But look, verses 16 through 21 show us that God doesn't just use general weakness like Ehud's are ours. God especially uses our particular weakness. This is good news for us. All that stuff just makes you feel terrible. Hopefully this makes you feel a little bit better, okay? God especially uses our particular weakness to rescue. Look with me at the way that God intimately uses Ehud's left-handedness to rescue Israel from Moab and Eglon, okay? Ehud makes and carries a prison ship Okay, it's just basically a 17-inch double-sided blade. But he's able to pass through like the Moabite security detail. He passes through the eyeball check and the pack down because his blade is on his right thigh, not his left, like everyone who, had a, who was right-handed would have had. Okay? Further, after he has dropped off his giant tithe or his giant offering, which is probably like food or grain, or maybe some precious metal. He casually turns back to Eglin, who is described like an ancient Jabba the Hutt, by the way, grotesquely fat. And then Ehud limps back towards Eglin, and he tells him that he has a secret message for him. In the Hebrew, the word for message is this double entendre. Okay, it's a word that can be, mean both a word, but also a thing like a sword. So he's being very clever. Okay, <laughs> just like I am. Okay, so Eglon, who, who the narrator, that's not his real name, because it means fattened calf. Uh, it's, a, it's an insult by the narrator. It's a play on the sacrifice about to happen to him. Eglon looks at Ehud over, probably studies the fact that he's had a crippled right hand. He looks at his withered hand, and he decides that Ehud is pathetically harmless. And he poses no threat to him. And so, not only... Eglon not only says, hey, come on with me to my private chamber, but he also says, hey, I don't need you, attendant. Silence. Get out of here. Okay? And so he's waiting for a word. A word from God or maybe some military spy information. But again, because Ehud is a lefty, Eglon doesn't think to react when when Ehud reaches towards his right side. He's thinking, oh, that's weird. Okay? And he's just standing there, and he's completely stunned when Ehud stabs him in the beer belly. And that blow-by-blow blow, is a retelling to underline the fact that the assassination of Edom only happens because, not in spite of, Ehud's paralyzed and deformed right hand. You get that? It would not have happened otherwise. God delights to use Ehud's particular weakness to rescue Israel in a way that only Ehud can. It runs in that movie, if you guys seen Cinderella Man, it's based on a true story, Russell Crowe. He's like the perfect cast, doesn't he? He's kind of angry, grizzly. He's a boxer. He plays this real-life boxer a real life, based on a real-life story. His name is James Braddock. And James Braddock was a good boxer. But he wasn't a great boxer. He got beat over and over and over again. Because the, the war in the street is he had no left. He only had a right. So you just had to pin him down, and then you could beat him up. And so that's what happened to him. He gets defeated because he an underdeveloped left-hand punch. In one fight, Braddock actually breaks his right hand, trying to compensate, and he's forced to quit boxing altogether. True story. But it happens to be the Great Depression. And so Braddock is trying to find work. He finds work as a longshoreman. He starts to to move uh, items to and from ships to load and unload them, but he has no right hand. It's broken, so he's hiding it. So he's having to use his left over and over and over and over again, right? But sadly, he can't actually get work on a consistent basis. And so his old manager calls him, and, and Braddock goes, I guess I should go ahead and fight this and go into the boxing room again, because frankly, I don't have any money. And so he goes and he fights the number two heavyweight contender in the world. And it's supposed to be just a, a body bag fight. And he wins. Braddock wins. and He knocks the other contender out three rounds. And then the climax of the movie, this is against true stories, James Braddock fights against Max Baer, the number one heavyweight champion of the world, who is so vicious, he kills people in the boxing ring. Two people were dead in the boxing ring. He hit them so hard, he hit them so many times. He's ruthless. Okay? Braddock is a 10-to-1 underdog. But on June 13, 1935, again, the movie's based on true story, James Braddock defeats Baer in what must be the greatest upset in boxing history. What's even more amazing is how Braddock won. He became a lefty. He became a lefty. All the lifting and all the carrying he had to do, his left hand as a longshoreman. Strengthened it until it became the primary punch he used, even when his right hand healed. Braddock's weakness, his left hand, became his greatest strength and led him to victory. And so, my question again is, Where do we feel most weak? Where do we feel least beautiful? What are those things about us that we feel most ashamed of? What is it that we scorn about ourselves? Have we begun to think about how God will use that thing? That God will use that thing that we did. God will use that body part we're not proud of. God will use that conversation we can't to remember, God will use that relationship that feels so damaged beyond repair will we like Ehud risk using that for other people's good will we like Ehud trust that God too can make us wounded healers and I again would point out that even as we imitate Ehud's particular weaknesses we are only imitating the gratuitous person of the ultimate judge and deliverer Jesus, okay God has used Jesus' particular poverty, his particular obscurity, provincialism, rejection, and humiliation to rescue the poor, to rescue the obscure, to rescue the hick, to rescue the outcast, to rescue the crook. Again, Isaiah 53 picks up on this thing, and, he put, and it puts it like this for the suffering servant Jesus. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he was stricken and afflicted and pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, just listen to that, with his wounds, we are healed. But the language of violence and bloodshed and wounds that Isaiah uses to describe Jesus gratuitous work on the cross, Isaiah 53 is actually a helpful lens to view our third and final point, God's gratuitous work through evil. And we're going to look at verses 21 through 30. Okay, So God's gratuitous work for Ehud verses 21 through 30. So Ehud's actual assassination of Eglon verses 21 through 26 is the pivot of this, epi- of this episode. It's the victorious battle that happens afterwards is a direct result of the assassination. Okay, Eglon's death is the reason that people will even follow Ehud. In verse 28, Ehud himself acknowledged the Lord has already given your enemies, the Israelites' enemies, the Moabites, into our hands. And look, finally, at a literal, at a literary level, if that wasn't underlined a thousand times, the narrator chooses to use the same word in the Hebrew for the sounding of the horn that gathers the men, in verse 27, as the word he uses for the thrust of the sword into Eglon's belly, in verse 21. Same word, thrust, and sounding. I have no idea how that's same word. Okay. The overall description, okay, uh, verses 21 through 26 is actually like intentionally disturbing though, right? I, this is like the juiciest part. Okay? isn't just stabbed. His belly fat closes over the blood and dung comes out. The explosive sound and the fragrant smell of Elon's final bowel movement here on Earth leads his attendants to incredible embarrassment. They say to themselves, Surely he is relieving himself. Okay, he's going to the bathroom. And then after several long, perhaps too long, agonizing minutes of waiting for Elon to finish going to the bathroom, doing his business in there, they open the doors and they find that Jabba the Hutt is sprawled out in there. Meanwhile, many commentators I read translate the word porch in verse 24 to mean something more like poop shoe. And so, Ego escapes Shosh Inc. Redemption style through Eglon's septic tank slash editorial room. He jumps through the poop sheets into the septic tank and opens up the door and comes out. And as if that potty humor weren't enough, because that's a lot of potty humor going on right there. Do we have a second-grade moment there? Uh, there's this incredible moral ambiguity, right? Think about it, like... God delivers up this man who's basically a murderer. He takes on an unarmed man with a shiv knife and stabs him in the stomach, unprepared. And that's like, that's where this whole moralism, this whole like be more like Eva, totally breaks down. like, don't be more like Eva. Don't, don't bash a 17 inch long sword and stab people in the stomach. Okay, don't do it. I'll tell you right there. Okay, but instead of like trying to justify the blood, the excrement, and the moral ambiguities of, of an assassin taking out a, a dictator in the ancient engineers, I just like to accept uh, that the gratuitous work of God for what it is. It's gratuitous. It's gratuitous. It's God meeting us in a world that feels so over the top with so much that's uncalled for. Right? A world that feels full of hatred, bloodshed, and just bathroom level dirtiness. Or it feels like to you, God meaning us in a boring, sterile, Febreze, neutral, somehow removed at a distance cell. So look, life could feel like a mass of twisted coat hangers, or life could feel like disconnected doorknobs. Think about that for a little bit. But, Ehud's rescuing work points to a deliverer unafraid to meet us where we live. The deliverer was born in a poop-filled stable. You <laughs> It smelled so strongly of barnyard animals. I can't begin to tell you. Okay, he was God, who wore carpentry wood chips in his curly hair, sweat stains on his one tunic because he didn't have two. We know that. He touched all sorts of skin rashes. He fingered them. He held all sorts of dying children. He bled when he got cut, and this Jesus died in the most gratuitous way possible with forgiveness on his suffocating lips, with a tomb empty of everything except dirty, used, gray clothes. And he rose to a new resurrected life forever after. Look, here's the point. At the end of the day, God's plans, whoop, God God's plans put my eighth grade PE plans to shame. Okay, they put our plans to shame he picks the Ehud's of the world and I often face my worldwide rescue attempt first and foremost on me and then all the people I like. Okay? And this, the reason that God does this is because, or the reason I do this, is because according to Frederick Buechner, people like me are prepared for everything except for the fact that beyond the darkness of their blindness, there is a great light. We are prepared for the worst but rarely for the best. Prepared for the possible, but rarely for the impossible. The good news breaks into this world where the news has been bad for so long that when it's good, nobody actually hears it much, except for a few people. And they are the last people you might expect to hear it. Themselves, the bad jokes. Themselves, the stooges in the scarecrows of the world. They are the ones who are willing to believe in miracles because they know it will take a miracle to fill the empty place inside them. The good news is this. There exists an absolutely outlandish God. He's outlandish. He does the impossible, he does impossible things with impossible people for a living. He does left-hand rescue for a best practices world. And that is good news. Would you pray with me?